0: Welcome in, everyone, to a very special episode of Three Men in a Retrospective Podcast right here on Percolated Media. This is Goudreau here, and I'm going solo for this particular installment because I want to do something Halloween-appropriate. And I will get to the Jets game on Gang Green and Goudreau this week because that was scary enough. But given our schedules and given what's been happening in our lives... Adam and Garrett weren't really able to commit to anything centered on Halloween. We couldn't really do a horror movie. We had talked about possibly doing a commentary track, but our schedules didn't align. But nevertheless, we wanted to get some content on the website pertaining to Halloween in some manner of conversation. And after talking with Garrett and Adam, I said, why don't we do a show just talking about the movies that Scare us the most. And on my estimation, I was given the green light to take this one solo and was given full carte blanche. So, this is going to be a conversation that I have with all of you where you get to learn about the movies that have affected me the most in what you would call a scary fashion. All of these are classified as horror films, so I'm not. In my mind, cheating by picking stuff that would be outside the genre and not related to Halloween. But before I get into all that, I do have to plug what's happening here on the site. As my outlook decided to attack me out of nowhere, I got my own jump scare in time for Halloween. We did finally finish the Batman retrospective with our review of that Batman. And it was so exhausting and so daunting that Adam said, I'm tagging out of the next retrospective. You guys go on without me. Somewhat of a fabrication, but looking at the schedule, which I planned, we decided to bring in our old friend Mike Ganeri, who, if you listen from the binge days, was on our M. Night Shyamalan retrospective. He was on our Michael Mann show. We reviewed all the Hannibal movies. A, go check out all those reviews over at BingeMedia.net. I think they came out fantastic. We will be revisiting Shyamalan when Knock at the Cabin comes out next year. Assuming it comes out, because who knows at this juncture with the state of the world and the state of these theatrical distributions. Things are always subject to change. But we're bringing Mike back to kind of... It's funny how the schedule works. Initially, this retrospective was going to lead up to the release of a new film. But speaking of schedules and date changes, it pivoted to a later release, which is still not definitive. So to spill the beans, which have already been scattered all over the floor, if you've been on our Facebook page, we are indeed reviewing all the films that Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio made together. So all five leading up to number six if that comes out next year. And why did we do this? Well, we've been wanting to do Scorsese for a very long time. He's one of the quintessential American filmmakers and one of the most lauded directors of all time. But we didn't necessarily want to tackle his entire filmography in one shot. And when I saw that his new movie was coming out with Leo, I pitched it as, why don't we just do the films he's made with Scorsese? Garrett agreed. We brought in Mike. Mike said he'd be happy to do it, and I think they're going to be as great of conversations as we have had in years past. You know, Mike's always great, and of course Garrett and I are no strangers to conflict or disagreement. And I will say this, there are a couple of shows that got very contentious. In fact, there was one where I was proverbially on the sidelines, letting the other two duke it out. For you to find out exactly what that is, you'll have to tune into the retrospective as our first episode on Gangs of New York will drop this upcoming Friday, November 4th. So that's what's happening on the site, and Gangarina and Goudreau will drop sometime tomorrow, talking about the Jet Patriot game. So be sure to stay tuned for that. I illustrated that I wanted to do this solo, and as I mentioned, Garrett gave me the green light to do this. So this will not be something that I do... On any sort of a schedule. Maybe once in a blue moon. I'll do a show like this. Where I have a topic. And just detail it in my own purview. Because the reality is. I prefer to do this with other people. I'm not one to always be someone. To record on my own. Because I like bouncing off of my other people's opinions. And as I've talked about. If you've been listening to this show in any capacity, I've always viewed myself as a writer first, well before a podcaster. I do think that tide has shifted with the big changes in my life and not having the availability necessarily to sit down and write any piece of material of any length. It's just tremendously difficult for me. But I love talking about movies. And in particular, I love talking about horror movies because of two reasons. Number one, it's my favorite genre if you forced me to pick one. And number two, it taps into something that I really appreciate about film discourse. I don't think there's a genre that has more hardcore fans and more passionate fans in the positive sense than the horror genre. For the longest of time, in fact, since its foundation, horror has always been somewhat dismissed as, well, depends on the decade you're referring to. Murder porn, slasher films, exploitation, trash, not cinema, as Martin Scorsese refers to superhero movies. It's never gotten painted, or I should say it's always been painted with the broadest of brushes. And not until... Certain movies, you know, you'll have your The Exorcist or The Science of the Lambs, which transcend the genre and are somewhat referred to as elevated horror, which I personally don't like that term. But getting back to what I was talking about with horror fans, I think the the fervor and the willingness of horror fans to be as outspoken as possible about the films they love, and they do it in the best way by Accentuating the positives and not devolving into the worst aspects of fandom. Very rarely do you see horror film buffs be the ones to do death threats or petition studios. I think we're a very sensible bunch, and that's what I appreciate so much about horror fans. But when it comes to the conversation in criticism itself, I think it's Baked into something that is very primal about us as human beings. We all have things that we are scared of. They could be existential, they could be realistic, they could be abstract, they could be broad ideas, they could be very specific. If you look at phobias, you know, they range from something as common and broad as a fear of heights, all the way down to a fear of fish hooks. I'm sure that exists. Because everyone has their own particular aversions or things that scare them, it makes for a great sort of psychological profile of the reviewer. Because it's one thing to talk about a movie in your own personal opinion, just reviewing it, and you know, you being your own opinion, but I think when a movie it really touches you or th- scares you on a on a personal level, you could have something really special. And all the movies that I selected, I do have ten, touch on different aspects of my own mental state and my. I guess, look at who I am as a person. And I don't really have one specific genre. I have different decades, different types of horror, different ideas. All of them are going to be illustrated in the movies I'm going to talk about. So what I'll do is I'll mention the movie, give some background. I'll do my best not to spoil anything because I think there will be a couple on here that some of you might not have even heard of. There's a couple on here that are pretty well known. Not that I'm one to... Latch on to the popular opinion, but some of these movies hold up for a reason. In fact, I would argue that the horror genre and horror films are reassessed, reevaluated, and repraised more than any other genre. Whether it's The Shining, whether it's The Thing, you have movies that were looked down upon at the time and in the years that are followed are hailed as not just some of the greatest genre films of all time, but in the case of something like The Exorcist or The Shining, or Jaws, if you constitute that as a horror movie, some of the most acclaimed movies out there. So I hope that preamble gives you some idea as to what this show is going to be. I'm really excited. Not all too often we talk about horror. Most of what Gara and I have done, are if you want to count the Hannibal movies, We've done most of the big slashers outside of Halloween. We'll get to that eventually, I promise everybody. It just didn't align with moving to a new site, the new trilogy. It just didn't, the stars didn't align. But rest assured, we'll do it at some point. So without further ado, let's get into the 10 movies I chose. And I am going to go in chronological order of release to make this interesting. And ironically, I think. All but, all but, it's about 50-50. I have some that are made before my time, some that are made after I was born. And I think there's good variety, like I said. So, we're going to start in the 1960s. And this is an important decade for horror films. Because when you look at the history of horror films, they started out as predominantly the German expressionism films like Nosferatu, Cabinet of Dr. Caligari for the 1920s then you get universal in the 30s and most of the 40s 50s you saw the rise of hammer horror films where they took the classic monsters that people knew and added color and blood and boobs just it was a the european counterpart to the universal american template of making horror films but you always saw trends in those decades, like the 50s. A lot of it was about nuclear Armageddon, the dangers of technology, and you'd maybe have some a lot of creature. Actually, not maybe. You'd have a lot of creature features and pissed-off nature movies, as I call them, which you would get for decades to come. But what makes the 60s interesting is that there was no no warning. Because the decade started off with Psycho, which broke all the contemporary rules at the time. So you got to remember, 1960, we still had the Production Code, which had rules on blood, what people could and could not wear, how they could and could not perform certain actions on camera, right down to toilets. That is how fine-tuned the Production Code was. So you got to remember, when Psycho came out, it broke all the molds. And people were seeing things in a film that they had never seen sequences put to celluloid. Like seeing a someone lounging around in a bra or flushing a toilet. It sounds very trite and childish now. But that was debauchery at the time Hitchcock made his movie. So I don't have Psycho on this list, despite me loving Psycho to a large extent, but it didn't scare me necessarily. My first pick is 1961's The Innocents. This is a movie that, if you've ever seen Nicole Kidman's movie The Others, it borrows a lot from that, and it's almost a remake. I don't know if it's a, an official one, but it carries a lot of the same plot beats, a lot of the, the same ideas. To talk about why this one made the list, I do have to give some background as to what the movie's about. So you have a governess who believes that the, the house that she takes care of, that has two orphan children that she looks after, she believes that there's some kind of supernatural power at play trying to possess the children. Sounds pretty simple. In fact, we've seen a lot of movies like this in the decades that have followed. But a lot of the things that scare me about this movie are, are not necessarily the ideas as much as the, the filmmaking. This is one of the great black and white horror films of all time as far as you know, cinematography by the great Freddie Francis. You get some really evocative... Uh, shot structures, you know, the, the the way like candlelight flickers. You know, it's all about using black and white, black and white, excuse me, black and white, to illustrate the idea of someone possibly going mad because you're never sure if the ghosts are real or if this is purely a psychological manifestation on her part. Because a lot of movies around this time were about someone trying to drive a woman crazy so they can inherit money or get a divorce so they can go off with their muse or their. The mistress. It's an extremely well crafted movie. There's, speaking of audacity, there's some evidence that the prior precursors or the prior tenants may have introduced these children to aspects of sexuality, which is tremendously startling to think about in hindsight that they were willing to to put that. Credit goes also to uh, writer Truman Capote did do a a pass on this, basically. And takes The Turning of the Shrew, which is a book to make you call everything into question. So that's my first one, The The Innocence, 1961. Number two, I'm going with 1963's Black Sabbath. If you're a horror fan, you really owe it to yourself to study what the Italians did and horror. And I say that because. The giallo genre was really the precursor to the slasher genre. They were about, you know, mysteries. There There were gruesome murders, incredibly stylized. The Italians are someone that we owe a lot of great horror films to. And Black Sabbath, of course, Mario Bava directed it, one of the pristine filmmakers in Italy. And he basically directed the earliest slasher film that you can think of with his movie Black Sunday. Uh, You could certainly argue that as a horror film, but Black Sabbath is... I'm a sucker for anthology horror storytelling. And I put this on the list for the last story that, that is in the movie. Uh, there's three all introduced by Boris Karloff, who, who was much, much older than he was when he was playing Frankenstein. So he definitely added some clout to, to this movie. You can also find this movie in some circles as the three faces of fear because of the three stories. Uh, the last one I picked is The Drop of Water. The reason I picked this is it taps on the fear I have of being haunted by something. This idea that for those of you who have, who have not seen the movie, which I imagine is a lot of you, you have a nurse who steals a ring off of a off of a corpse basically. And once that happens, The supernatural shit starts to happen. There's a fly that keeps festering her. Lights go out in her apartment. And she keeps hearing this sound of of dripping water. So it's those, the psychological thing of, much like the innocence, of, is this person going insane? And in the big scene in the movie, the woman's corpse is lying in her bed and just starts floating towards her. And the imagery that Mario Bava does, particularly with the lighting and the makeup on this woman, it is one of the most startling images you'll ever see. And it's still something that I have imprinted in my subconscious. You know, this is sort of the, like the Pazuzu face in The Exorcist. If you see this at a young age, it will truly scar you. There's also the fear of temptation. You know, she steals the ring out of greed because it will likely bring her some great value. And we do all struggle with our inner demons with whatever they might be. Everyone has different struggles, but there's always that thing of it can be solved by doing something unethical or borderline wrong or sinful. If you are the the pious type. So I have black Sabbath number two. Number three, going into the 1970s, arguably the greatest decade in film, not just horror. And I'm going with a movie that some of you might laugh at because of the the name most people think of the remake starring Nicolas Cage or Midsommar, which borrows a lot from this film, is the I Have the Wicker Man from 1973. it's one of the oddest horror films you will ever see because the entirety of it basically takes place during the day. It's, I call it the sunniest horror movie of all time because it literally is, you know, it's beautiful cinematography. It's about a constable or a detective who goes to investigate on summer's Isle, And of course things are not as what they seem. And why is this on the list? Well, The remake is scary enough because of how boring it is, because I got to put this out there right now, this disclaimer. The entire movie is not the not the bees or Nicolas Cage punching someone in a bear suit. The entire movie is not like that. 90% of it is dull and uninteresting. And no atmosphere to it at all, which the original does very well. Last 10 minutes of The Wicker Man. Not gonna spoil it if you haven't seen it, but the the implications that you you have someone who has a very particular your main character has a particular set of beliefs, and he thinks he's there for one purpose, and then it turns out that it's something sinister and something that he was not expecting. But yet all the pieces still line up so it doesn't feel like it comes out of nowhere. It's a very well written script. But this ties into my, my own personal fear uh, of religion and, and zealots. Now, let me, let me say this This is where I get pretty personal. I alluded to this on the alien versus predator two show. I do believe that I do believe something happens to you when you leave this planet. I do believe in a higher power in particular. I do have the, the theological composition of a of a christian not just cuz i married someone named christian but why i put this on the list is the, the 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 frenzy that these people are in and the things that they do under the guise of religion is truly terrifying because when you look at human history the most sinister weapon and the most destructive force That has ever been seen on this earth was not the atomic bomb. It was not the bullet. It's death and destruction under the cover of religion. Look at the Crusades. Look at the Spanish Inquisition. We have done despicable things to our fellow humans because of our beliefs and the wicker man really touches on that and and hits a nerve that makes me uncomfortable but it's one of my favorite movies of all time not just a horror movie but just that that idea and seeing it reflected in reality not just in the past you can look at some contemporary stuff not to get political but the 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 the, the, the oh my god I can't even talk Like I said, doing bad things under the guise of, you know, whether it's one person or uh, 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 an aristocracy, what have you. The Wicker Man defies convention, but it is absolutely a horror movie. Keeping in the 70s with my fourth pick is Don't Look Now. Which is the name of the movie. By the way, not to keep you all at suspense, the movie is called Don't Look Now. I was not sending up a joke, despite that being what you may think of me. This is a movie that it's best if you see it knowing nothing. So I'll leave it at that, but I will say the two reasons it's on here. One, the final scene There's a reveal that will stick with you long after you shut off the television. And number two is the the fear of losing a child. You know, I'm a I'm a father and you always you want the best for your kids and you want them to outlive you because it is always it always feels wrong when you lose someone who should be spending more time in this earth than than you are. Because in our minds that's the natural order of things. But part of this crazy thing we call life is that not everything goes according to plan. And this is a movie that really touches on that. With the sense of dread and disconnect you can get from something that traumatic. So don't look now, 1977, number four on my list. Number five, David Kornberg's The Fly from 1986. I don't think this is one I have to talk about too much because it's pretty well respected. It's pretty well known. So I will say the, you know, the fear of decay and the fear of our own mortality, I don't fear death, but there's always that every once in a while, that moment where you, you're brought back down to earth, that your time on this planet is finite and you have to make the most of what it is. And sometimes not everyone is blessed to leave in a state of bliss or just natural causes. Sometimes there are diseases, there's cancer, there's things that take a person and slowly degrade them until they inevitably pass. And the fly illustrates that in a way that is both repulsive, but also very allegorical. It, it's not just the fear of your own personal decay. It's the idea of watching someone that you love experience that. Because you have to look at this also from the Gina Davis's character's point of view. It is one of the most disgusting movies you'll ever see. There are parts in it, that, though, that are so disgusting it's borderline comical. But The Fly, 1986... Absolutely deserves merit because those things do unsettle me, those ideas. Uh, number six, going to a Dutch movie from the 80s. It's called Loose or The Vanishing from 1988. Number one, do not see the remake with Jeff Bridges. It is unwatchable. So this movie touches on two things that scare me. The fear of losing someone to a kidnapping. That's oddly specific. And number two, without spoiling the movie, is I do have a certain amount of claustrophobia. And in particular, it pertains to something that happens within the context of the movie that just got under my skin. I can't tell you what it is because it has to do with the ending. But it's it's a movie that really... How, It's an ending that Hitchcock would be proud of. And the movie also breaks convention because it reveals who the kidnapper is immediately. It's not a mystery that the movie is built upon. But you spend a great deal of the movie learning about this guy. And there is a, there is a particular instance and a point once you get the kidnapper and the main character who is trying to find his girlfriend again, they have a conversation and it leads to something that, as I illustrated earlier with claustrophobia, will really, it'll test you if, if that is something that you suffer from. So the vanishing or super loose or spore loose, as it said, I, couldn't speak Dutch if my life depended on it. Uh, it's a great, great movie. So now we get into the 2000s, the aughts, the naughties. Now they're in the torture porn era. That was one of two big trends that this decade was responsible for. The second one is the influence of J-Horror and taking Japanese horror films and remaking them for American audiences. While some of them are better than others. I do think the, the undisputed King is the ring or Viminsky's the ring. I have a number seven, despite being an American movie, it touches on and keeps intact. What I love about Jay horror, And that is the, there's always a fear of fatalism in Jay whore. What I mean by that is that if you are cursed, you are irrevocably screwed. There is nothing you can do. There is no Faustian bargain you can make. There is no... You have no way around it. You are, like I said, and death is inevitable for you. And whether it's the girl coming out of the video, uh, some of the imagery you'll see, the idea of it being transferable just by doing something as innocuous as, rock, as watching a videotape, which I think is sort of a commentary on how media can, I don't want to say corrupt a person, but can can materialize and be seen as a negative force. And that's actually something that the last movie on my list will touch on as well. So I have The Ring at number seven. Don't watch The Ring two or Rings. They both suck. Just stick to Gore The Ring and you'll be... It's a very unsettling time. And Naomi Watts is great. So now we get to number eight. Uh, This is a movie called Wreck. Which is, I think, the best of all the found footage films you will ever see. It's Spanish. Which actually, I think, aids it because you are immediately put into a place that you feel somewhat alien to. If Spanish is not your first language, you're also in a foreign area and the characters are in a place where they, they have no idea what to expect. It's a movie predicated upon what you don't see. The idea of being in unknown spaces, sort of like the innocence, you know, is it, is it real? Am I just, is my hysteria kicking in? And it's one of the great surprise endings you will ever see. Number nine, I have a movie called The Strangers. Part of this being on the list is the being where I live. It is as rural as could possibly be. I might as well live in a log cabin, basically. And with that being said, there's always that fear. No matter of you could be in the most... Scenic, nowhere of towns. And yet, the possibility of someone breaking into your house is something that we think about on a consistent basis. Certainly something that I think of a lot. So the idea of someone invading your home, and, you know, basically holding you hostage in in your own domain. That's tremendously unsettling. And I've never seen a movie scare me with, with, a, with just a line of dialogue towards the end when Liv Tyler asks, why are you doing this? One of the kidnappers says, because you were home. The spontaneity of violence illustrated by that. It could happen to anybody just based on circumstance. There are things out there that could just be what you perceive to be bad luck. Just people. There are just objectively bad people out there. And whether it's the the, the the way that the camera moves, so you see someone in the background and then they step out of frame, but you know they're still there. It's a very well-made movie. And the masks, of course, are great. So I think it's a movie that's been overlooked. Um, even the sequel uh, was, was pretty good. It was called uh, Pray at Night, I think is what it was called. Simple, you know, not even an hour and a half, so it doesn't overstay its welcome. And it really is a movie that has taken upon itself to reflect on contemporary culture. These main characters basically could have been the two guys from Michelle Haneke's Funny Games. And like I said, the idea that there's no... The 80s rules of, you know, everything Scream made fun of where you have sex, you die. You drink, you die. You do drugs, you die. That's not here. Death is entirely spontaneous and it's unrelated to what you do. So I have The Strangers, number nine. Number 10 is from a director that we talked about one of his movies this year, uh, Scott Derrickson's movie Sinister from 2012 is the last movie on my list. This is the last movie I saw in a theater where the night I got home, I slept with a light on. I was that shook up by it. And, And there's a couple reasons why. I think this one will take the longest discussion because this is a movie I've wanted to talk about for the longest of time because I think this is one of the best horror films in the last 20 years. It's a great script, and it does a lot. So number one is it's got fantastic jump scares. The is one thing, but there's a scene with a lawnmower that is as effective as it is largely because of the, the absence of sound until it literally rears its ugly head. And just, you know, the aftermath that you see is all shown through Ethan Hawke's character. Because the camera cuts. You don't see the lawnmower touch that person's head and decapitate them. It's all in Ethan Hawke's expression. And he sells it as well as anybody could. He sells it like Ric Flair jumping over the rope and doing the flop. To use a wrestling term. That stuff is tremendously upsetting. All the, the, the Super 8 footage. All those home videos that Ethan Hawke's character watches. And that ties into my second point, the idea of our children being corrupted by an by an unknown force. Evil kids are a cliché in horror in and of itself. Whether it's Village of the Damned, whether it's The Bad Seed, whether it's Children of the Corn, which we will get to all 12 of those goddamn movies, or however many there are. You can blame Garrett when those reviews start coming out, Mr. Completionist. But bad kids are just... It sells in horror movies. Look at hell, Stephen King has done it numerous times. Look at Pet Cemetery. But the way that Bagul in this movie is depicted as this, you know, seemingly by all accounts, if you look at him, you know, this is definitely a bad guy, but the way he he, get, he gets to the kids and the cycle keeps continuing. But the last point I want to make is the the fear of obsession is something that I really struggle with is where I get personal. The idea that you become so enveloped in your work that you sacrifice your family. And I'd be lying if I said, this isn't something I wrestle with because I am a, I am a family man first and foremost, number one in my life, but I also love my job and it requires a lot of me. And there's always that, inner arm wrestling match where you worry that you are putting your loved ones in danger at least on a on a personal relationship because you are doing it under the guise of, of your job and your, your professional career and that is precisely what Ethan Hawke's character does, he doesn't tell his family that he moved them to a murder house because his Reputation is waning and he's inevitably he costs him his family It costs everything once you get to the end of the movie. And in the era of COVID and quiet, quitting, remote work, the work life balance is as difficult to maneuver, in my opinion, as it's ever been. So that aspect is really what put it over the edge. And certainly 10 years ago when I saw this, it was not that component that shook me to my core. But as I've gotten older and, you know, started my own family, it's really, it's really hit me in a way that it didn't 10 years ago. And I think the script does such a great job of explaining, well, what person would not turn over these videotapes of police? Well, Look at Ethan Hawke's character. He's trying to do everything he can because his his reputation as a writer is basically in life or death territory. It's it's on a it's in a coma basically. So with all that being said, Sinister is one of the movies that really as I've gotten older, has affected me considerably more than almost anything on this list. So those are my ten but I did want to give an honorable mention to a movie. That's not a horror movie. I said, I'd keep it to just horror, which is why this is an honorable mention. So call me a cheater. If you want is a movie called boy erased, not a horror movie, uh, but it is one of the most uncomfortable viewing experiences I have ever had. And I will do my best to get through this without crying. Uh, because this is a movie that really uh, hit me in a way that it might not necessarily impact everyone listening. Uh, It is about a kid who comes out of the closet to his family. He's inadvertently outed. So it wasn't even his call to make. And he Southern kid, although he doesn't have an accent, I say Southern because his father's a, you know, like a Baptist preacher. And he is sent to a gay conversion camp. And I'll say this. While I am scared of certain components of the supernatural or. Like I said earlier, more abstract ideas, I think the horrors of reality. whether it's any aspect of life whether it's school shootings whether it's we look at what's happened with race relations we look at what ha- what has happened to living in a country that is so divided that we're reminded all too often that we can be our own worst enemy and there are things out there that really should not exist and I am very blessed that I am at a point in my life now where I have been out for quite some time for for years. Some people have known since college, some people have known towards the tail end of high school. Obviously, I'm an open book now. You know, I'm I've learned to accept that and not to be to be ashamed of it. But not everybody is as fortunate to have that as a part of their upbringing. And movies like this and and cases like this, because it's based on a book, it's, it's autobiographical, not everybody has that luxury. And seeing this... type of environment be handled as effectively as it is without coming across as crass or inauthentic because it's made by Joel Edgerton, who is a straight man, writer, director, who's one of my favorite people working in Hollywood. I think the guy is a a tremendous actor. He's proven to be a great director. And I was, I was floored by this movie. But a lot of it does have to do with me being who I am and realizing that this is not something that has become obsolete. There are still places like this that function. And with you know everything from teen suicides and all, all those kinds of things, you realize, to bring this full circle, that sometimes we can be our own our own monsters and our own. We have our own demons. That don't always go away. And. You know, it's. It's it's terrible that. Things like this still happen. And this movie came out only three years ago. And this would be a, a a conversation that I'd love to do another show, like the movies that make you cry, sort of in the same way that what movies scare you, because I think that's also very telling. Uh, and this is one that I was crying so hard that somebody asked me the next day because I I knew this movie was, was going to put me through the emotional ringer. So I I had a friend go with me, not my not my husband. Um, straight friends, and they asked me the next day, are you okay? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm fine. But the the scene where, not to spoil it, but the best acting Russell Crowe has done in probably 20 years is when he finally, I don't want to say come to terms, because it's, it's a very complicated relationship. But when he tells his son, who's the main character, that, you know, I... I'm selfishly upset that I'm not going to have any grandkids. At least in that... In a, in a biological sense, in his mind. But I also don't want to lose you. Really was one of the most impactful things I have seen in a very long time because as I've <clears throat> excuse me, as I've talked about somewhat jokingly on past shows, I never knew my father. And I always put myself in that mindset of how would he have responded to that? if I had to have that conversation, so, uh, sorry, give me a sec. So when I jokingly say that Jesus camp is the scariest movie I've ever seen, I don't say that jokingly. Um, But boy erased. I wanted to mention that because it is when we talk about like what a horror movie does, like I was clinching my seat. I was, there were parts I had to look away. There were parts I had to close off my senses it like scared me because you know i put myself in the main character's shoes and all that all that kind of stuff so those are the movies that have scared me the most and i hope i was able to recommend some stuff that you haven't seen and there are some you know non horror movies that have scared me like like boy erased you know i think of stuff like the I don't consider Jaws a horror film, but there's the jump scare when Hooper is diving. I think as a kid, there's the Raiders of the Lost Ark, the face melting would get me. Uh, Voldemort being on the back of Quirrell's head in the first Harry Potter movie. A lot of great nightmare fuel for my generation as kids. So I hope that gives you all sort of a a better look into what are the kind of horror films that get under my skin. Because we don't talk about horror that much. And I would certainly love to do more. But I also wanted to put this out there because it's appropriate for Halloween. And it's been it's my favorite time of year. You know, everything's out. You know, costume parties, kids trick-or-treating, decorations, pumpkin carving, surplus of Halloween candy. So, I'm going to be sad that, you know, we have to wait till next year. You know, it's like the Nightmare Before Christmas. I... I ripped the calendar like the mayor and I'm like, there's only 364 more days left. So I hope you all have a very happy Halloween. Thank you as always for listening. I said the show was going to get personal and I'm, uh, you know, that, that part of my life is not something I talk, I, I talk about in a non joking way. So appreciate you all giving me the soapbox. If you're still listening. So with that, like I said, thank you all for listening. Be sure to tune in to our upcoming shows. And if there's anything that you want us to talk about, we are always looking for new content. So if you want a certain retrospective or a movie we review as a one-off, I'm sure we'd absolutely consider it. We have also talked about setting up a Patreon and some kind of a merchandise store. But the details on that are yet to come. It probably won't be until the new year when we hit our one-year anniversary. But who knows, it might be sooner. So with that, this is Goudreau signing off. Thank you all for listening and happy Halloween.